From McKinsey's Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. For many business leaders wrestling with the challenge of the coronavirus pandemic, growth may seem like a distant priority. However, once the health of employees is protected and the business is secured, many executives are quickly shifting their focus to restarting their stalled growth engines. A recent McKinsey article reports that only one in 10 companies managed to outperform on growth both during downturns and during the subsequent recovery. Today, we're speaking with the article's authors about what these through-cycle outperformers do differently. Rebecca Dougherty is a partner in our San Francisco office and leads our growth strategy service line globally. Anna Koivuniemi is a partner in our Amsterdam office and leads our growth analytics globally. Their article, Rev Up Your Growth Engine, Lessons from Through-Cycle Outperformers, is available now on McKinsey.com. Rebecca, can you start us off by telling us how you define through-cycle outperformers? Thank you, Sean. When we think about growth, we don't want just growth for growth's sake. We really want value creation. We define this as companies that grow faster than their peers and have higher profits than their peers. And if we look at our through-cycle outperformers, these companies will generate three times higher revenues during the downturn versus others, and then nine times higher profitability. This growth really happens in the downturn and recovery, and that really turbocharges them to go through the entire period. So companies that are able to do this really drive value creation in the form of excess return to shareholders, 5.3% in fact, which is 5 times higher than the average company. We did this research over the course of 15 years, 2003 to 2017, and have looked at other time periods as well, and the findings are all consistent. In what direction do the companies you studied typically pursue this growth? So when we think about growth, four potential directions. Your core business, expanding geographically, see the value chain integration or disruption in many cases today, or moving to adjacent fields. The majority of companies, actually 95% of the value-creating growers, will look at three directions or more of growth. And that doesn't mean placing bets in the same way for every single one. They will say, I'm going to actually place some bets, and then one or two, I'm really going to lean it hard. But it's key here is actually not falling in love with one direction of growth and not falling in love with ideas, but actually taking a step back and thinking, hey, you know, how do I think about my entire portfolio? The majority of companies are thinking about growing their core business. In the downturn, some companies think about really turbocharging the commercial side of it, but start to look a little bit outside. So you see that in the geographic expansion, value chain, and moving to adjacent fields as they think about diversifying their portfolio, for example, into less cyclical adjacencies. So how do through-cycle outperformers' approach to growth differ from other companies? Almost most importantly is leading with a through-cycle mindset. It's not completely redoing your strategy. It's not completely putting the brakes on everything, but being thoughtful about, hey, where do I pull back? Where do I actually lean forward? And how do I protect my innovation and sales capabilities? Because those things will propel me in the future. I've talked to many leaders and what they are thinking about doing is taking their strategy and just making slight tweaks in terms of where they really can accelerate versus not. The second point here I'd like to highlight as well is, you know, We're not saying blindly go toward growth. What we're saying is if you have a strong balance sheet and you've created the optionality to do this, right now is a great time to be opportunistic. So if we looked at our suicidal growth outperformers in 2007, so right before the financial crisis, you know, they had about 20% higher excess cash than their peers. 
you play that forward to 2012, they actually had 53% higher excess cash. So these companies were doing multiple things, both around, you know, preserving this optionality, but also strategically placing bets. Anna, how did these companies manage to free up cash during a downturn so that they could have these growth options? So in a sample of roughly 2,000 companies, 10% were the true cycle outperformers. And by the way, presenting almost all industries. When we look at how they actually were freeing up resources or creating the optionality in their spend, we found something very interesting. In a downturn, there is no significant difference between the true cycle outperformers and other companies how they save cost. Everybody saves costs. Everybody ramped down the the spending, although the true cycle outperformers, their relative spend decrease was, was smaller. So they actually saved, but they saved a little bit less than the rest. When the recovery started, the true cycle outperformers were really increasing their absolute spend, especially, for example, areas like CapEx and R&D, four times higher than the, than the rest of the sample. They actually think thoroughly where to invest, and when the times are looking better, they are early on investing for the future, uh, and they are investing radically more than the rest of the companies. So what allowed these companies to make such large investments sooner than their competitors? Were they just better at predicting when the recovery would start so that they could make these big bets? Qualitatively, when we look at the players and when we talk to a few of them, I think they were much more thoroughly looking at the all directions of growth, so not only focusing on core, and they had this basically clarity on where to invest when there is a room to invest. Rather than knowing the exact moment, it was a really the thorough process of understanding where to grow and then creating the optionality to freedom to invest when, uh, when the opportunities were starting to emerge. One point, Anna, if I may add, and through cycle outperformers actually also grew during the downturn, right? So even though they ramped back their spend a bit, they were still making bets and still growing during the downturn. 95% of the companies, at least, were doing that, right? And so even though they ramped up in a bigger way in the recovery, one of the lessons is actually you still are placing some strategic bets, both broadening and deepening it, you know, when, when, when things start to look better. Anna, where did these companies focus their growth initiatives? Did they concentrate their efforts on their core business or expand into new areas? One of the key choices is where to grow. Core is where to look the first options of growth. To cycle out performers, it look at their core also. Uh, here is an example of uh, Finnish uh, manufacturer. And in the last downturn, what they did very actively was actually investing in their services business. They did have a services business before, but they doubled down the investments and focused on that during the, the crisis. When the CapEx investments are going down, you still actually need the services. Uh, but they did it very thoroughly with redesigning their service portfolio. They actually made their services much more modular and therefore flexible to offer. But they also invested heavily on the capabilities to deliver and sell those services. So they did in the downturn to scale up the part of their core where the demand was still there, which was services. The other example was adjacencies. Many of these true cycle outperformers looked into the part of their portfolio, close 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 part of their portfolio that gave them buffer against the against the cyclicality of their core business. For example, the construction company they had a portfolio when they entered to the cascade which was very construction and engineering focused services. In the crisis, they made a the decision of diversify their industry exposure 
So they went to the environmental services, they went to oil and gas equipment in order to to grow through the adjacencies and countercyclical part of their portfolio grew substantially after the crisis. Anna, that's a great example, and I'd love to complement it with a retail company out of South America. They thought the same way in terms of what is a customer segment I may actually go after. So organically, they added this financing business to the low-income customer segment, and the growth rate of this business just skyrocketed as they went on. So it was a great example of them looking at the customer landscape and thinking, well, what does a new customer need and what's the capability I can innovate within my core portfolio to move into an adjacency to, 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 ca- to capture a new opportunity. Thanks, Rebecca. What about geographic expansion? Anna, was that a path many outperformers chose in the last economic downturn? We actually found out, interestingly, that during the cycle, during the down cycle, actually the outperformers expanded more to the other geographies, 1.5 to 2 times so high than the rest of the sample. Outperformers really targeted geographies that were growing or even cities or regions that were growing and investing in those. For example, the Portuguese retailer, the last crisis in 2007, really looking at the Polish market and thought about that market GDP and retail part of the businesses were healthy there and that in many other parts of the, in many other market. And they actually had a very targeted acquisitions, doubling their store presence in Poland. And were there any big differences between sectors in terms of the strategies that the growth outperformers pursued? I think that uh, we did find differences on the throughout cycles in the, in the different sectors. Uh, Rebecca mentioned earlier that 95% grew in the downturn. Well, this was the case almost across sectors, except three sectors which were outliers, which was basic materials, consumer packaged goods, and energy, and especially in basic materials that was related to, of course, on the raw material price erosion. But those sectors then picked up in the recovery enormously. So the idea of the resource allocation that you put in a recovery, you invest and you fastly accelerate your growth after that, is also a way to become an outperformer. I think the point here is that just don't wait until things stabilize, because then you lose, you lose the, the momentum, what you can capture throughout the cycle. And what about M&A and portfolio moves? Did the outperformers have any common approaches to mergers, acquisitions, and divestitures? So the M&A has been a core strategy to get that growth and get, expand into those other areas. If you look at the, the through-cycle outperformers, during the downturn, they actually did 1.8 times larger deals. So they spent $238 million U.S. dollars in the M&A, while the others spend $135 million. Now, this doesn't mean that they did only one big deal and this it. They did multiple deals. So the programmatic M&A was the core of the strategy. Then on the recovery, what was interesting, that the size were leveling up. So through cycle outperformance, we're roughly doing 1.3 deals, while the other ones were doing 1.17. And, and what about digital M&A in particular? Was that a major focus of the deals during and after the last downturn? We looked into the digital M&A also in general from the period of 2003 to 2019, so slightly longer than the, the covering the downturn and the upturn. What's interesting if you look at that period is that the size of the deals, the capital deployed in digital M&A has grown 11% by year. Also, size of these deals has been increased. I have to say that it's very skewed. Still, there are a few 
very large deals and then a lot of small deals. But still, in general, also the large deals are going up. What we found interesting is the share of what we call non-digital buyers, so companies whose business model is not fully digital, has grown enormously in that period. So actually, 30% more deals are done by uh, non-digital buyers. Yeah, another interesting point here, um, just one statistic for you, if you will, is we also, you know, looked at digital M&A from the perspective of non-digital acquirers as well as digital acquirers. And what we saw from a purely performance-related metric was that those that did multiple deals over time and over a year, programmatic, if you will, actually had higher excess TRS, right? But the other thing we also saw is that non-digital acquirers while they're growing in their digital M&A, you know, they are, quote, unquote, behind, if you will, digital acquirers. Many people haven't done it or have started to do it, but don't feel quite as prepared because it's, a lot of times it's growth-oriented um, in kind of a space, you know, that is less familiar. Rebecca, while many companies, if not most, are noting the importance of digital capabilities during this crisis, how should they approach potential digital acquisitions? since it's typically a more difficult arena for a traditional company to break into. Right. I think it's very important to be clear up front what you're really doing this acquisition for and really understanding the deal rationale. Um, but the second point on the due diligence, in particular non-digital acquirers, right, the, the requirement is really to do more diligence on the commercial and the technical piece. Right. So, for example, on the technical piece, it's understanding what is the roadmap, what is the technical capability of the team, right? And how do we think about accelerating that to achieve the strategic objectives? On the commercial piece, some of these companies are following a go-to-market motion in an industry or in a market, if you will, that is still growing. So understanding the TAM, understanding how that may evolve in the commercial element is very important. The third point is about how you value the target, right? I think most people are very familiar with doing a DCF and doing a kind of a straight valuation, doing a few comps. In some cases, that may work, but a lot of digital M&A is with pre-revenue companies as well. So how do we think about their growth trajectory? A lot of times what we've seen companies do successfully is really think about, well, I'm doing not just one acquisition, but I'm really building a new business or a new capability. And to me, that business or that capability is worth X. And if we think about this one target or two targets, contributing to that new business value of X. You know, what is their contribution based on the capabilities that they're bringing to this business, right? And so a lot of times that could include revenue synergies with other capabilities. Um, how do we think about that holistically? Because a lot of times um, these acquisitions, if they're pieced together in the right way, can very much be one plus one plus one equals 10. And then finally on the integration, right? A lot of the, it's a lot of the same classic questions around integration. Um, but there is often a focus more, even more on talent retention, in particular with the Equihire and how do we set up the incentives, um, as well as really a lot of the soft pieces around culture to make it attractive to stay. Another issue that can arise when non-digital companies buy digital organizations or digitally focused organizations is this notion of a, a clash of cultures. Rebecca, can you explain how acquirers can best mitigate that culture risk? That's obviously a tough one and one that, you know, everyone is battling. You know, here what we would say what we've seen really work well, right, is actually spending a lot of time in diligence on the culture, right? There's a lot of um, things you can do outside in and, frankly, a lot of conversations you can have with the top team, right? 
Um, and, and a lot of times what we've also seen work well, work well right, is to talk about um, very frankly and very upfront up about kind of what the expectation is um, of the leaders that you're often tr trying to keep, right, and really listening to them in terms of what the culture is that's needed. Um, you know, ring fence is a term that's thrown around that honestly sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. It really depends on the rationale of the acquisition, right? So if you have, if you have one where it's all about kind of go-to-market, and there's actually very little interaction point that's needed between, you know, the, the target and the acquirer, you actually may be able to do that and just set up the right incentives for cross-sell and upsell and really making sure those handoffs are clear. If you're actually integrating two engineering teams, that looks very different, right? And actually thinking through, hey, who, who are the key people you need to keep and what's the culture of engineering you need to, you know, promote, in particular if they're in different locations, right? How do you think about rotation? How do you think about, you know, growth? Um, and setting up an attractive career path. The times we are in where digital is radically uh, changing the way we buy, the way actually we sell, uh, the way we have these meetings like that, that we cannot meet each other, um, is already implying culture change in your organization. And maybe actually now the, the time uh, to integrate a digital uh, native where all of us need to learn new digital tools is somewhat better than it was half a year ago. Thanks, Anna. And Rebecca, where do you see the biggest focus on digital capabilities in terms of growth strategies? Yeah. And I think kind of unique to the situation we're in right now, right? A lot of sales in particular is remote, right? So a lot of companies have been thinking about how do we innovate and how do we think about our go-to-market, you know, both B2B um, and B2C, right? In some cases, how do I invest in digital? In some cases, um, how do I, you know, but both the front end of digital in terms of reaching more consumers um, and reaching, you know, other businesses, as well as the back end to make my processes more efficient. Look at what is happening in this crisis and the speed it's happening. What we see is the boost of investing in digital capabilities. And of course, the change of buying and selling behaviors are forcing us to do that. I found it particularly interesting what happened in China on January, February, March, when they were actually in the lockdown earlier than Europe and America. The companies there, the extremely rapid allocation of your spend from traditional channels to online channels to capture the market share and structurally capture the traffic that has moved to online. A skincare manufacturer, what they did is, and here are some my examples, so they had a safe people hosting their own videos with the skincare tips, uh, a very bottom-up in, uh, kind of a, uh, entrepreneurial behavior. They invested in really key opinion leaders to get them on TikTok to drive the demand. They actually developed also uh, live, live streaming on the certain events like Valentine's Day, and they had a live streaming. So they really, really uh, reallocated the resources, but also innovated the way they reach their, their customers. So let's move now from uh, discussing acquisitions to divestitures. Rebecca, can you talk a little bit about the role that divestitures play in the outperformers' growth strategies? So, Sean, I, I love the question you asked because I feel like part of the answer is already in there. You know, one of the, the really key pieces um, to look at your portfolio, right, is actually thinking about, hey, what are the granular pockets of growth, right? And where, what are the attractive businesses you want to keep versus not? You know, what, what we've seen over time is that the companies that are most successful are kind of programmatic acquirers who do, you know, a few deals a year along a few specific themes and really build a business um, with selective divestitures. So segments of the business that 
no longer jive with our portfolio or, you know, just don't make as much strategic sense. And to the extent they're able, companies are able to divest those and really being honest and saying, hey, you know, this actually isn't the right fit for me, you know, to shed that business, um, to open up, you know, really the the dry powder, if you will, to make moves that make most sense. So, Anna, with many companies and their potential valuations under stress from the economic impact of the pandemic, is this a really good time to grow by acquiring businesses? This perception that now is a cheap time to buy, we should buy something, I think that it's a very dangerous one. You need to continue to stick to your strategy. And the acquisition targets that you're currently looking should fit to that long-term strategy and the value generation principle that you're actually following. You should not now go crazily looking outside because there are bargains. Thank you. And, and what are some of the most important points companies trying to position themselves for post-COVID growth should keep in mind? There's basically four key messages. One of them is setting the bar high. One reason we have done the through cycle outperformer or the whole outperformer research is that we want to trigger the companies to put their growth aspiration high enough to show where you stand against your peer, but also show that the, what are the, the outperformers really doing well in order to learn that. The second one is really making sure that you are not stuck to your core idea, so stuck to the one idea, and, and the rest, of course, also referring that in m and Don't fall in love with the one idea. All of these two-cycle outperformers, what we have identified, they were very systematically looking multiple directions of growth to ensure that they are up to the game in the right market, in the right value chain integration when it happens. The third one is the big move outside of the core. So new geographies, adjacencies, evaluate that in a granular enough level to make sure you don't miss anything. And then the last point is that uh, these crews have asked for it, 95% crew them in the downturn. Now, if you were not able to manage that, then double down the first two years on recovery because you need to take the momentum now if you want to be one of those crew cycle outperformers who crew faster than their peers and ended up more profitability than their peers. Great. My final question is, how can our listeners um, take the insights that you've shared today to best quickly align their leadership team around the importance of doing this and, and getting everybody excited about moving forward? I, I love that question um, because it is about, you know, how do you take theory and make it practical? First and foremost, a lot of times this does need to be led top down. So having your CEO on board is, is absolutely critical. Right. Because I think, you know, if I can reinforce one element that Anna talked about is the setting the bar high. Right. So that aspiration needs to come from the CEO and the mindset around, hey, this is how we're going to think about growth. And this is how we're going to think about strategically allocating our portfolio is really key. We often find it's the combination of, you know, some of the facts, you know, a little bit is thinking about really the uh, legacy of the company and his or her tenure that will be set. Right. And actually thinking about, okay, well, what do the different scenarios look like and how do I want to come out on that? I think the second thing is um, really the change management, if you will, around how to think about strategy is not just being incremental or thinking about it in a way that just makes tweaks to the budget from last year. I think there is a broader mindset here um, that the whole executive team and company needs to adopt around. It's not around making tweaks, like where do we actually really want to clean sheet things? But a lot of times we find that the mindset is there. Everything else is fixable, right? You can put in the processes, you can bring in the facts, you can do the critical thinking, 
um, that will get you here. But getting that first piece of alignment is sometimes actually the, the, the toughest. I don't know, Anna, what you would add? I think that's put on. And I think that uh, one thought, which I would also like to, say, to, to leave you with, is that this is not a game for next year. This is a game for next three to five years. So dare to have that longer-term perspective on growth and dare to look all the different uh, directions of growth. Anna, Rebecca, thank you so much for taking the time to share your insights with us today. For our listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Inside the Strategy Room. An edited version of this discussion will be available soon on the Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice site on McKinsey.com, where you may also find links to other episodes. If you'd like to access McKinsey's latest insights on the COVID crisis, please visit mckinsey.com slash coronavirus. If you have feedback or an idea for a future episode, please email us at strategycf, that's for corporate finance, underscore practice at mckinsey.com. If you'd like to receive alerts on our latest publications, you can sign up at the bottom of each page of the Strategy and Corporate Finance section of McKinsey.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy or connect with us on LinkedIn via the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.